This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. We have spent the better part of this year trekking through the book of Hebrews. So you can go ahead and start turning to Hebrews. We're in the last portion of it, and the whole portion is trying to make this point. God is faithful. And if God is faithful, then it calls us to something. It calls us to endurance in our faith. Why? Because God is faithful. It's so beautiful. And faith is this trust, it's this dependency, but it's, it's revealed in three ways. It's expressed in three ways. Faith is expressed in our continuing growth and relationship with God. Faith is expressed in our endurance, our persistence in Christ. And faith is expressed by our loving action, our obedient action. Now, our author is writing to a group of men and women who used to be Jews, and persecution has really increased. And it's increased so much that many of them are tempted to go back to Judaism just so they can get out from under all of the persecution being leveled against Christians. And tonight, our author even brings up another kind of people that are tempted to go back to old lifestyles those who are tempted to go back to their old sinful lifestyles. They want to make themselves God. They want to pursue sin. But these people are in the church. They've heard truth. They've been around the body of Christ. They've been around believers. And God has judgment for those who are camping out as undercover Christians, as as hypocritical Christians in the church body, as those who want to leave and go back to their old sinful lifestyles. And in sharp contrast, God has incredible gifts for those who will stay the course and walk in endurance. So that's where we're picking up tonight. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to finish the chapter tonight, beginning in verse 26. And we're going to dive into some of the most sharp challenging verses discussing God's judgment against sin in probably the New Testament. It is a no-holds-barred revealing of God's attribute of wrath. Now, we've talked about God's attributes before. If you'd like to, to dive in deeper, you can go and check out our series on God's attributes called Who is Like Our God? It's Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. But God is full of many attributes, He's full of love and mercy and patience. But he's also a God of holiness and justice and fury against sin and rebellion against him. And what we see at the cross is this beautiful harmony that God's holiness and wrath against sin meets at the cross God's mercy and love for us perfectly. And I think that in our culture way too often, What's promoted is God's love, but it's God's love absent the reality that his love is so sweet because his hatred for everything that stands against him and the people that he loves is so severe. It's what makes his love beautiful. 
that he doesn't stand for anything that would compromise his holiness or his people. Now, with that in mind, buckle up. Verse 26, he lays out examples of those who would walk away from what they say they believed. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Ooh, whoa, what a way to start. Now, through these last chapters, we discussed a sacrifice of sin and how the Jews would bring this atonement offering to God to purify their sins, and that Jesus is our perfect and final atonement offering. And he's saying that for those who choose ongoing sinful lifestyles, now what he doesn't mean is he doesn't mean you and I that struggle with sin sometimes, that fall into sin. He's talking about people that are making a conscious choice for a sinful lifestyle. They're making themselves God and pursuing their own desires. But you see, they can't bring a lamb anymore and fake it in front of everybody else because Jesus has been our once and for all lamb of God, our sacrifice for sin, and God knows our hearts. And he will apply the blood of Christ to those who are genuinely repentant and who come to him and make Jesus their king. And so if we choose a lifestyle, if we say, I've heard truth, I've been a part of the body of Christ, but I want me, I want my sin, that blood of Jesus' sacrifice will no longer be applied to that person. That's terrifying. But a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume his adversaries. This is, this is strong language, his adversaries. God doesn't see people that reject Jesus as pitiful. He doesn't see them as, as sad, depressed, whipped dogs. No. Those who choose to reject Jesus are not just pitiful. They are God's adversaries. They have turned their heads against him. In Romans, Paul says that they are haters of God. You see, before Christ, we were not poor, pathetic, whipped dogs in a corner, and God came and showed us how much he loved us. Before Christ, we were biting, snarling dogs, and he changed his, our hearts to show how much he loved us. We were his adversaries. C.S. Lewis says that fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms, his weapons. So what's left for, for those who are unprotected by God's judgment, unprotected by Jesus' mercy, there's nothing left but expectation of judgment. So I think one of the things that we can see right away is what is an evidence, an expression of a true believer, is that their tastes have changed. This is talking about people that go back to sin, but, but a true believer has had their tastes change. They no longer love the sin that they used to love. They're now beginning to hate sin. And they no longer 
hate the righteousness that they used to avoid at all costs because righteousness is not fun and it means that I have to submit to someone. It means I have to submit to God and they're beginning to love righteousness. Our tastes are changing. I love this quote by a pastor. I couldn't find out who it was from, but he says that for those who struggle maybe with a certain sin, I don't know about you, but I do. But here's the difference between an unbeliever and a believer. People who love Jesus slip into sin and hate it. But people without Jesus leap into sin and love it. Like, let that stick with you. When you sin, does it grieve your heart? Do you fight your way back to, to, to repent before God? Or when you sin, are you like, yes, let's see if I can get away with it again? There's a difference. We need to check ourselves. And now almost as if our author here is saying, nope, they didn't take me serious enough. He like takes it deeper. And what he's going to do here is he's going to first lay out for us what justice, good objective justice looks like. Because he's going to make a point. And so he points at the best, most just system that he can think of. And that is the, the law of God, the first five books of the Bible given through Moses. So let's look at verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, anyone who despised it, who threw it off, who rejected the law of Moses, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Pause. What? All right, bear with me. In ancient times, moral code for kings, rulers, authorities was based on might makes right. If I can overpower you, then what I say goes. And that's the law. That was, that was how it that just functioned. So if someone accused you of something and drug you in front of the authorities, but they had power money, influence, friends with the judge, you were toast. Might makes right. But God set up this system in the Old Testament for his people, for the Israelites, that was a shining beacon of light in this dark moral world. And this, this system regulated retribution. It discouraged false accusations and it undermined cruelty. In a world where it's might makes right, if you hurt me so much that you damaged my eye, then I would try to overpower you and hurt you until I felt better, and that's my retribution. But the Old Testament law would limit the punishment to say, no, it's an eye for an eye, nothing more. Not your human desire for anger or vengeance. It's a tooth for a tooth. It's a life for a life and nothing more. So right away, even that fact that it says on the evidence of two or three witnesses shows how good and just the system is. Because someone can't just accuse you and have you killed. They have to come up with two or three credible witnesses that you deserve death. Now let's consider justice here for a second. What does this phrase mean? Dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It's that, in some cases, mercy would be unjust. If someone is a murderer, 
two or three witnesses verify they're a murderer. And the judge says, I'm going to have mercy on you. Go and be free. That is injustice. That is a corrupt judge. And so what is it saying here? It's saying, no, this is a just system. Think about my sweet Nadia, my, my little girl. If she takes a toy and she racks her little sister over the head with it, and I say, Nadia, I love you so much, you get mercy, and she walks away with nothing, how much love am I expressing for her little sister? Zip. So our author in Hebrews is pointing back to the system and he's saying this was cold, objective, good justice. Uncomfortable, severe, but at least fair. So with that in mind, you guys ready? Buckle up. Verse 29, how severe is it to reject Christ. Verse 29, how much worse punishment? Worse than what? Worse than dying without mercy. Are you following me? How much worse of a punishment do you think will be deserved, just, good, fair, by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Whoa. Anyone who returns to sin and makes themselves God will receive justice. And it's going to be even more severe than what man executed in the Old Testament law. Elevate, do you take unbelief too lightly? Think about it. Sometimes we treat choosing to follow Jesus kind of like being on social media and choosing to follow or not follow a band or celebrity or something. We choose, should we or should we not follow Jesus? Like, should we buy this house or that house? Should I marry this person or that person? Should I go to college here or there? But we're talking about a decision that is not a decision between two equals. It is the inherent responsibility of all things created by virtue that they are creations to serve their creator. Did you follow me in that? The very fact that we are creations inherently makes us responsible to serve the one who created us. We are the clay, he is the potter. God gets to do what he wants. And we conform to the will of the potter because we're the clay and he's the potter. But it's even more so because, yeah, there's a gap between dirt and a conscious creative mind that has authority over it. But how much more the fact that this potter created the dirt, brought it into existence. We, the clay, had no say whether or not we would be created or not. We didn't get a vote in this. We also don't get a vote in what happens after God brings us into existence. Our responsibility from intrinsically from within ourselves is to obey, honor, and serve the one who created us. So whenever we say, no, God, I'm doing things my way, the clay is committing high treason worthy of death against the king of kings of all the universe. So what's actually going on? What is actually going on when someone rejects Jesus, when someone chooses unbelief? 
after hearing truth. In love, God gave his son for death to save rebellious clay. He allowed his son's blood to be poured out to establish a covenant of peace between himself and that clay. And through the Holy Spirit, he extended his hand of grace when the clay was hopeless. How will an infinitely just God respond when the clay tramples his son, the one of highest value in the universe? Those who reject Christ are counted as having crucified Jesus. Like, that's severe. That's terrifying that God would see someone in that lighting. But to reject Christ, to say, no, Jesus, you came out of mercy and love. I don't want it. That profanes the very blood that he spilled. He spilled blood to ratify the covenant of peace that God extended out of his great mercy towards us. And what does it say? They profane, they count as worthless that blood of God's son. Further, Jesus' mission was a mission of salvation to people who didn't deserve it. And the Holy Spirit is an advocate of every believer, bringing us into the favor of God despite our unworthiness. So where does that leave us if when the Spirit is offering grace, we slap it away? Oh, my goodness, can you imagine grace, which has spent the, someone's entire life pleading with them to come to Christ. Grace, extending what someone doesn't deserve. Coming to a point that upon death, that grace is no longer their advocate, but now the one witnessing against them that they deserve judgment. Oh, that grace would not be anything but in our favor. How much worse will the righteous, perfect God Punishment, punish someone who treats his son this way. Worse than dying without mercy. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Did y'all know that was in the Bible? We get caught up so often, we think that God's infinite love means that God is infinitely willing to bend the rules, infinitely tolerant, infinitely willing to dabble in grace. But no, he is a God of infinite love, which means he has infinite hatred against all those things that would compromise his holiness or the people he loves. Vengeance is mine. Vengeance is my responsibility. Quoting Deuteronomy 32, Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 it's almost like this is what this author was thinking of when he wrote this down. Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's terrifying. So maybe this is the first time you've kind of like dabbled into the scary side of comprehending God's wrath against sin. Maybe, maybe you were kind of sheltered only in seeing God as like this lovey grandfather, everything is okay and passable with him. But I challenge you, you can look through this thing from cover to cover and God is much more interested in your knowing that he's holy 
than knowing most other things about him. Jesus speaks of hell more than he speaks of heaven. Someone tell you that on Instagram? But whenever we get a clear view of who God is and a clear view of how God views sin, it challenges us. We start realizing that we're hopeless. Like we should get to the end of these verses and go, God, I am, I am hopeless. God, what do I do? I've trampled your son. What do I do? I've slapped away your grace. I'm hopeless. I've counted your son's blood as worthless. What do I do, God? There is no other place to go except to repentance. You can say, with this knowledge, nope, I'm going to live my life for me. Or you can say with this knowledge, oh my God, I need a savior and it can't be me because I'm hopeless. And that is the beginning of salvation is whenever we come to the point that we realize that we have nothing, we're worse off than nothing, that God says, yes, I am going to apply my son's blood to your account. You get mercy. I have so much mercy if you'll just turn to me. This is our God who waits with open hands, waiting for us to come to the end of ourselves so that we would come to finally know the beginning of him. He is a God of love and mercy, but he's not a God who is tolerant or flexible. He can offer us mercy Pay attention right now. In the words of Pastor Kevin, get closer. God can offer us mercy because he gave no mercy to Jesus on the cross. God can give you and I grace because he showed Jesus no favor on the cross. In fact, all of God's all of Jesus's infinite goodness and perfect obedience was applied to you at the moment that you say, Lord, I'm hopeless, I repent, and I'm yours. So that God sees you as his perfect son because he saw your sin applied to his son at the cross. Our only hope is repentance. All right, exhale. We can loosen up a little bit. We, we took our dive into the deep things of who God is, that God doesn't play. But there's more for his people. Hebrews chapter 10, let's go to verse 32. Our author here is so kind, so pastoral, because... He offers this illustration up of, man, what, is hap what happens to someone if they choose their sin over God? But then he reminds them of who they are in Christ. Verse 32, but recall, remember the former days when after you were enlightened, after you knew about who Jesus was, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Oh, isn't that so great? 
our author here is saying, but you guys got it. That's not you. You're not the ones who are going to go back to your sin. You guys have shown yourselves faithful. Remember back whenever you first came to Christ and that wave of persecution came through? Everything got really, really hard. What happened when that happened? You stood up. You endured. You locked your ankles in. You showed yourselves faithful. You showed yourselves with endurance. You showed yourselves with loving action and loving kindness towards people. You did it. Remember that. Isn't that beautiful? So what happened to them? They were publicly shamed, and yet they partnered with one another and took the shame together. They were imprisoned. What had happened? They visited one another. They had their possessions stolen, confiscated by the government, yet they remembered that their greatest possession wasn't here. It was Jesus for an eternity. They clung to their relationship with Christ. They took loving action. They endured. They were doing everything that he wrote about in the verses that we studied last week. Their faith was fully expressed. And what's he saying here? Don't get complacent now. Don't buckle. Don't slide into gray. Don't begin to slow down. Don't get complacent or apathetic. Lock into who you are. Brace yourselves because persecution's coming through again. Do it again. Be faithful because he is faithful. Isn't it amazing how so often we overvalue things? We will overvalue reputation to the point that we will be the most undercover Christians in our schools. We will value reputations like a light put under a basket because we're so concerned about what people think about us. Me. I confess. We're so concerned and overvalue freedom and independence. We want what we want. We want the freedom that we want. We're so concerned. We overvalue stuff. Stuff. None of this matters. Nothing between the walls of your house, none of that matters. It has no bearing on eternity. None of it. It's stuff. It's going to rot it's going gonna, it's gonna to deteriorate. It can be stolen. It can rust. It's, it's stuff. We so overvalue things. We so overvalue reputation. We're not bold for Jesus. We so overvalue independence that we refuse to commit ourselves wholly to the king. We so overvalue stuff that we cling to what we can't keep. But our Savior lost reputation. He died a shameful death of a sinner our Savior lost his freedom and he lost all he had to the point of death because he counted it as worth it. Jim Elliott, I want to leave that name for you. Jim Elliott, Google him, look him up, study it out, his life and the life of his wife. Jim Elliott, after you understand the story, you'll know why this quote is awesome. He once said that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. She is no fool who gives what she cannot keep to gain what she cannot lose. Reputation, freedom, stuff, it's not worth it. You can count it as loss compared to the knowledge of knowing Christ. Verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Knuckle down, don't give up. Keep enduring. Be who you've already shown yourself to be. Why? Because God has more than just mercy. 
Isn't that cool? We come to God saying, God, I'm sorry. I repent. I can't, I've sinned against you. I have nothing to offer. And God says, I have mercy for you through my son's blood. I will not hold you accountable. And, and I have blessings for you. If the punishment for denying Christ is worse than death, the reward for embracing grace is better than life. That's why stuff doesn't matter anymore. That's why reputation can come and go. That's why freedom isn't necessarily that free anyway. Because God's rewards are better than life itself. Romans 8, 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what's his challenge? Verse 36, for you have need of endurance. What is it you need? You need endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You don't need deliverance, you need endurance. Sometimes God will snatch us out of hard times. Sometimes God will show himself faithful by walking with us through hard times. You may not need deliverance, but you need endurance. This season of struggle, suffering, and trials is temporary, but our commission is to do the will of God. What is the will of God? To live by faith. And as always, he anchors his point right into scripture. So he quotes scripture right here. He says in verse 37, for yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. He's quoting two Old Testament passages, Isaiah 26, verse 20 and 21, and Habakkuk 2, verse 3 through 34. And what's cool is Jesus actually fuses these two verses together in Luke 18, 7. And so he's, in Isaiah, it's talking about this day of the Lord, this day of God's wrath when he's going to judge sin. Doesn't that sound like the theme of our author tonight? Then he says God's coming. He's going to come in judgment. He's going to come in wrath, but he ties it together with Habakkuk 2, 3 through 4, and it says, but the righteous will live by faith. How will we stand? How will we escape God's wrath? The righteous will stand, will escape, will endure by faith. That's how we make it. The righteous will live by faith. This is our hope. Faith is the way by which the righteous receive mercy and escape God's wrath. Are you following me? By faith, we receive mercy and escape God's wrath. Do you remember the story of the Exodus? Remember Moses? The kid who's like in the basket floating down the river. You remember that story? And God brings Moses, raises him in a desert, and brings him before Pharaoh to boldly demand by God in heaven to let the Hebrews who were in slavery go. Do y'all remember this? And God opens up a box of kick booty on Egypt. Just one plague after another plague after another plague after another plague devastates their economy, devastates their population. And then the final plague, the clincher, the turning point, this was it. God says to Moses, go and instruct the people. Have them bring a lamb without spot into their home and kill it. They're going to take the blood of that lamb and they're going to paint it on the doorposts and across the top of the door. 
And then they're gonna roast that lamb and eat it. But remember this, keep your clothes on, keep your bags packed, keep your sandals on your feet and eat fast. Don't even take time to, to wait for the yeast to rise in bread. Eat it without yeast because tonight we're heading out and we're gonna head out quick. And then what happened that night? God, in his judgment against sin, against Egypt for murdering the infants all those years ago, in his judgment against Egypt for enslaving his people, God, in his wrath, comes through Egypt. And at every house, he takes the life of the firstborn of that house. A great cry went through Egypt as mothers lost their children except for those homes of those who were obedient to God's word, who put their trust in God's word, God would see that bright red blood on the doorpost and he would pass over that house, leaving all in that home safe. He would have mercy on all of those in the house. He would withhold judgment from all those in the house. This is a beautiful picture of just that. By faith, under the blood of Jesus Christ, we receive mercy and God's wrath passes over his people. You know what happened next? Pharaoh calls Moses in and says, get out. And it says that as the Israelites were leaving, the Egyptians gave them jewels and money to take on their way. It says they plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptians wanted them out so badly, they're like, here's our stuff, get out of here. Then God cares for them for 40 years in the wilderness, providing for them every day until he brings them to a land that he promised them, a land that was fertile and beautiful and perfect for them. He didn't just give them mercy whenever he passed over. He also gave them incredible blessings. So what is faith? If mercy and reward, mercy and grace are obtained by faith, what is faith? Now's a good time to start writing. Faith is not something that you possess. You don't hold faith. I've got faith. As if faith is some sort of like ability or talent or power or, or the force that you have. It's not something you have. Faith is recognizing that you have nothing. So you are depending on someone or something else for everything. Did you follow that? Faith is dependence. Faith is trust. Faith is reliance. Do y'all remember the story of David and Goliath? That one I shouldn't have to tell to catch you up. David and Goliath, y'all with me? I love this. I'm just gonna turn there because it's so fun. So this is 1 Samuel 17. If you think you can turn there fast. 1 Samuel 17. David is facing off with Goliath. And I want you to hear what David said. Goliath comes out, he makes fun of him, he curses David. Verse 44, and the Philistine said to David, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then listen, this is what David said. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, 
You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin. Where's your faith, Goliath? Your faith is in your, your spear. Hello? You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. Where's Goliath's faith? Yeah, all right, so I'm going to keep reading. But I come to you with a sling. If you're with me, you're like, no, that's not what it says. No, David doesn't say that at all. He says, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied this day. Yahweh will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Yeah! Notice that David doesn't say that he's armed with a sling or great agility, or experience. David doesn't say that he's really fast, that he's strategic. David doesn't have any faith in himself. He isn't looking to his own abilities or powers or strengths. David is putting his full dependency on the fact that God will show up. Faith is not something that we have Faith is dependency on God. It's not a strength we have. It's a dependency on God's strength. It's, it's not our works that are good enough for God. It's a dependency on Jesus' works being good enough for God. So what are we depending on? What are we putting our faith in? Is faith an emotion? Do we have to like keep our emotion like really worked up? Do we put our faith in trusting our own faith? No. We're depending on two things, that God is who he says he is. Y'all remember this already? And God will do what he says he's going to do. God is who he says he is, and he'll do what he says he's going to do. This is exactly what our author Hebrews is trying to say. Last week, verse 23 of chapter 10, for he who promised is faithful. Why can we endure? Not because you have it in you. Our author here is not saying, you've got it in you, you're so great, you're good at, at, at enduring a persecution. He's saying, knuckle down and have faith. Have faith. No, 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 not something that you can muster inside. You don't get to have some sort of object or power called faith. No, knuckle down and depend fully on the fact that he who promised is faithful. We're gonna, we're gonna get to chapter 11 and it's a string of people, men and women, and every single time, if you get to the end of their life, go ahead and write it in. They depended on God because God was faithful. Because God was faithful. Because God was faithful. Because God was faithful. Again and again and again. And then as you get to the end of chapter 11, you're going to find out that God doesn't deliver everybody. In their suffering, in their deaths, in their persecutions, God is faithful, and God is faithful. And what shows more faith? Trusting God when he delivers you or trusting God when he walks with you through it? Our author here in Hebrews is writing to people that are in persecution. And he's saying, God may deliver you and that would be awesome. But he also may call you to endure in suffering, and that would show your faith all the more. What's the evidence and expression of faith? Relationship with him. 
loving action, obedient action, and endurance. And then he closes with this. This should be written on a shield. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We, are, we don't back up. We don't shrink back. We're not destroyed. Isn't this great? But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I love it. Right now, the author says, we, I'm in this with you guys. We're not those who shrink back. We don't go back to our old lifestyles. We're not of, you elevate, men and women of God, look up. You are not of the kind of people that go back to sin. God has called you out of darkness into a glorious life. You are of a people that fight forward. You are of a people that lean into God to sanctify you. You are of a people that fight on your knees. You are of a people that endure because he is strong. You are not a people that shrink back. You are not a people that hide in your classrooms or at your jobs. You are a people who endure and who love. That's who you are. That's your family. That's your father. Those who have faith. But let's not lose track. It's not saying you're really awesome because you have faith. He's not saying you're going to endure because you have faith. You'll not be destroyed because you have faith. You won't shrink back because you have faith. He's saying, but because you have dependency on the one who has all power. Dependency on he who is faithful. Dependency on the one who's going to hold you up in the worst of situations. And he's going to preserve your souls. It is a miracle that God would save any of us, that we would trample his son underfoot and despise his blood of peace. And yet he would save us anyway. It's a miracle that God would do that. And it's also a miracle that he keeps us saved. Verse John Chapter five, verses four through five. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. That we have a whole lot of good faith inside of us? We have the superpower of faith? No, this is what overcomes the world, our dependency on he who overcomes the world. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? We throw ourselves unto him I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. And if you're not convinced, this is Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Who gives you eternal life? So if the same person who gives you eternal life is this one who's saying you're going to keep eternal life. Is he trustworthy? And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Wait, wait, wait. Who has the power to overcome Jesus? It's a short list. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. I and the father are one. Who would overpower God? Would it be you? You think you can overpower God? No, God is going to, he is going to retain his people. Dependency, that's what our faith is. It's dependency on his power and his strength. Our author here is beginning a long section on endurance. 
He's calling us to endurance. Because God is faithful, we can endure. Back in 1990, there was a Bible student. He was only 22 years old, and he felt called to minister. He was a Peruvian. He was from Peru. And he felt called to minister to the rebels, the rebels that were murdering so many people in the countryside that millions were flocking into his city, blowing his city up to 7 million people. They were called the Senderistas. I had to say that a few times. Senderistas. That was the name of this rebel group. Now, by chance, our friend Francisco was walking by the royal palace. And just as he was, these senderistas pulled up in a car and fired a mortar into the palace, causing all kinds of destruction. And the police arrested Francisco as being one of the terrorists. And he lost his freedom. He lost his rights. He lost his possessions. He lost everything. They took Francisco and they plugged him in to maximum security. And in maximum security, in this prison, were 500 men and women. Every one of them were of that rebel group who had been arrested. So losing no time, he had trained for this. He had trained how to present the gospel to communist terrorists. And God put him right in the middle of that group. And he began witnessing and spreading the gospel and gently encouraging and loving, loving these men and women. And there was a woman named Maria, a young woman. And her job in, I'm gonna, I, I gotta figure out how to say this thing. The senderistas, her job in the senderistas was after a terrorist attack, she would walk around with a revolver and anyone who was injured but not dead, she would shoot them in the head so that there would be no survivors. That was her job. And she asked Francisco, could someone as lost as me be saved? Yes. And she gave her heart to Christ. By the time Francisco went before a judge to finally deal with the sentencing and be released. Over 60 prisoners are given their lives to Christ. And there is still, to this day, a church within that maximum security prison because of one man who endured when it seemed like everything fell apart. God, I'm supposed to be free. I'm supposed to go out there and witness. And God said, no. I've got a whole harvest, but you're going to have to give up your freedom. You're going to have to give up your reputation. They're going to call you a terrorist. You're going to have to give up your stuff. But if you're willing to endure, oh, Francisco, I've got such a cool calling for you. You and I are made of the same stuff that Francisco is. Fearful, weak flesh. But you and I have the same Holy Spirit that Francisco had. And the Holy Spirit is strong and faithful. And that is why we, us in here, we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Heavenly Father, I thank you 
for the example of Francisco. And wherever he is today, I pray that you are blessing him. I pray that he never quite left the mission field. Thank you, Lord, for men and women of God who are enduring, not because they have any power or ability or strength, but because they're throwing their dependency onto you, who has all power and all might. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room has or will fall on their knees before a just and holy God and repent of their sin and make you their Lord so they would no longer know you as judge, but know you as father, as merciful, loving, gracious father. Lord, work in e-groups tonight, even if we don't have a lot of time. Let us dig deep. Let, let the consideration that you are a God of justice soak into us. Help us to begin to understand just a glimpse of how your justice and wrath is part of your goodness and beauty. That we can rejoice that you will not let sin get away. We can rejoice that those who hate you will finally be dealt with. That those who are committing atrocities to the innocent will finally stand before justice. And Lord, I pray that you'll use us to reach out and love and snatch some of them from the flames. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.